Well, Merry Easter, everybody. <clears throat> it's good to be here with you on this special day. I hope you all have great plans for family, and I thank you for coming today. It's a packed, packed house, so as you can see. I, uh, two things about me real quick. In case you're visiting or fairly new, you may not know this. Uh, I love pranks. I mean, I absolutely love pranks pranks. And I love to swim. In fact, my mom tells me a story when I was about three years old, she says. We, she was at a pool, and uh, she's a little bit like me. She's a little distracted, we'll say. And uh, she lost focus on me, and she turned around, and I was not in the floating device, whatever it was she had me in, and she couldn't find me. And she was freaking out like any good parent would do. And then she saw me swimming around under the water. No lesson, nothing, just swimming like a little fish. And that's been true of me my whole life. But as I got older and I took swim lessons, now I put these two things together, pranks, swimming. This could be dangerous. So my whole life, and there are so many stories of this, I have enjoyed getting into the water, sneaking up behind a family member, a friend, especially my sister, and grabbing their foot, picking them up from under the water quickly without them knowing. Now, this is not so much a big deal at the pool, but if you are in a lake, or the ocean. You know what happens if you grab somebody's foot when they can't see what's under the water? They kick you a lot. And for some reason, I've never learned this. And I remember multiple times in my life, this kind of thing happening. And all of a sudden, there are bodies over top of me. And the thing that seems to never dawn on me, maybe at the 39 years old, I figured this out. The thing that never seems to dawn on me is that I'm going to run out of air. And so there comes this moment where I'm panicking and things have gotten really hard and I'm not sure I'm going to break through to the surface. And I begin in that moment to have irrational thoughts. You know what I'm talking about. Now, here's what I know. It may be a bad example or a silly example, but it's an example. Life is the same way. 39 years of living have taught me, and I know it's not a long time for some of you, but it's taught me that life at some point is going to throw you a serious curveball, and it's going to feel like everything is weighing down on you. And in that moment, you will have irrational thoughts, and you will do things, or you could do things, that you could regret your whole life. A couple weeks ago, I heard this story play out. I wish I had time to tell all of the details. I don't, but I'll just say this. God led me to the hospital. It was Friday night. I was just getting ready to put my kids in bed, and I got an email from a Kingsway member saying, would you pray for me? My mom's in the hospital. Uh, I felt the need to go. I don't know why. And so I put my kids in bed, told Rachel, I got to go to the hospital. I went to the hospital. After I finished up with that family, I decided to rent a movie for my wife and I, and I went to Family Video Store. It was over at uh, IU West. And after coming back, I don't know why, I opened my phone, and there was an email from another Kingsway member saying, could you get somebody to go to the hospital tomorrow and visit my brother? He was just diagnosed with stage four cancer. I pulled over on the side of the road. I said, which hospital are we talking about? He said, IU? I'm right here. And they said, well, he's, we're emailing back and forth. He's probably asleep. It's been a really long day. I went anyway. I got in there, and the nurse was like, he's probably asleep. He's got some pain meds in him, and it's been a long day. And I go in, he's not asleep. And by the sovereign hand of God, we sat, and we had a very long, hard conversation. And I don't know the man. I've never met the man. I've only met his family member, I think, once. And that might have been by email. I'm not even sure. I don't know him at all. But he wanted to talk to somebody because he knew he probably had months to live. That was the diagnosis. And he began to tell me about some of life's greatest regrets. I told him, I said, look, we don't have time to go over your entire life history. Why don't you give me the big two or three? And he narrowed it down. And then he told me this. In one of the hardest, most painful, difficult, darkest moments of his life, he was angry at God. And I won't tell you what he said verbatim, but I'll just say he cursed at God and told God, get away, I don't want anything to do with you. And it felt like the weight was just pushing down on him. 
And he told me, he said, I'm not afraid to die. But he said this, I'm very concerned. I'm very concerned that I've gone too far. Have you ever wondered if you've gone too far? Now, this too far thing, it could be any number of things. Maybe you didn't literally curse at God and say, go away. Maybe for you, it's that you did the same thing you swore you'd never do, and you did it again. And maybe for you, for some of you, especially those of you who are believers, maybe for you it was when other people asked about your faith in Jesus Christ, you just slip out of the conversation. You find some other answer, some other response, something that's safe. Maybe it's a flat denial. No, I'm not sure Jesus really died and really rose from the dead. I don't believe that. I, I don't have struggles with that. I deny that. Whatever it is for you, I know this. Life gets hard. It does for all of us. And when life gets hard and it's pressing down on you, you will do irrational things out of fear. You will do things that you regret the rest of your life. And I don't want you to have that story. And so what I want to do is I want to take a look at the Bible at somebody who when life pressed down around him, he did something he regretted. And what does he do about it? And the guy's name is Peter. You may know him as Simon. You may know him as Simon Peter. His birth name was Simon. That's the name his parents gave him. Jesus gave him the name Peter because it means rock, because he was going to be a rock. And he told him, Peter, you're going to be a rock for the church. And about that same conversation, Jesus looked at him and said, Peter, I want you to know that Satan has asked to sift you like wheat. If you don't know what sifting is, it's this violent process where you shake the wheat to separate it out and get down to the good stuff. And that's what Satan is asked to do. And Jesus said, yes. And he tells him in that moment, Jesus does. And Simon, I want you to know I've prayed for you. And after you failed, come back and encourage and strengthen your brothers. And Simon didn't believe him. Peter didn't believe him. But then later on, we get to this moment where uh, Jesus looks at him. And, and, it's, and it's literally at the Last Supper. Judas Iscariot has gotten up to go out and betray Jesus. And Jesus looks at him and says, you're going to disown me. You're going to deny me. You're going to betray me. In fact, not just you, but all of you are going to do that, looking at the other 11. In fact, here's part of that conversation in Matthew chapter 26, verse 33 to 35. And Peter declared, even if everyone else deserts you, I will never desert you. Jesus replied, I tell you the truth, Peter, tonight, before the rooster crows, you're going to deny three times that you even know me. What's it like to look at somebody else and they don't just predict your failure, but they predict the exact nature of it and it's the worst day of your life? Peter looks at him and is like, No! Even if I have to die with you, I will never deny you. And guess what? Peter goes first, and everybody else is like, well, we better say the same thing. So all the other disciples vow the same. Oh, yeah, yeah, me too, me too. No way, not me. Keep reading. It's only a few verses later. Jesus takes the disciples out to the Mount of Olives, and he prays. And off in the distance, uh, some Roman soldiers come to arrest him. And when they get there, Peter's like, here's my moment of glory. Whips out a sword, lops off the Roman soldier's ear. Jesus puts, to grabs Peter's arm, put the sword down, Peter. And grabs the ear, and he puts it back on. That's an amazing moment right there. And they arrest him. And they take him away. And Peter is baffled. What do I do now? They just arrested Jesus. He just told me not to fight. I was ready to die with him, but he just went with them, and now what's going to happen to him? And he watches as they take Jesus away in chains. Peter and John follow at a distance. 
John gets in because he's got some connections. Peter can't get in. So they take Jesus into this building to try him, and John goes into the building. He's able to watch. But here, look at this now. We'll find this in Matthew, sorry, John chapter 18. John chapter 18, verse 16. Peter had to stay outside the gate. Then the disciple who knew the high priest, that's John, spoke to the woman watching at the gate, and she let Peter in. And the woman asked Peter, you're not one of the man's disciples, are you? No, I am not. Hmm. Denial number one. If you read the rest of John 18, you'll see he follows it up with a second one, and then guess how many more? Just like Jesus described. In Luke's telling of the story, I've always found this fascinating because of the scenario and the way it looked. Again, Peter's out in the courtyard, John, Jesus, and the whole trial thing going on inside. It's a kangaroo court of sorts, all these false accusations, people spitting on Jesus, punching Jesus, mocking Jesus. But they can't find anything to accuse him of. He's not guilty of anything. And all their testimony disagrees with each other. But this thing goes on. And all of a sudden, Peter denies Jesus for the third time. And a rooster crows at that very moment, we're told. And it tells us in Luke that in that moment, moment, Jesus and Peter's eyes meet. It's as if Jesus is inside the trial, and even though he's being mocked and accused and beaten, he knows what's going on out there. Jesus always knows what's going on out there. And I can only imagine the terrifying nature of the gaze of Christ in that moment. Not only did I deny him, Peter must have thought, but Peter runs out and weeps bitterly. But I want to show you something in this story, something uh, that maybe you've never seen before. Take a look at chapter 18, verse 18. Because it was cold, the household servants and the guards had made a charcoal fire. They stood around it, warming themselves, and Peter stood with them, warming himself. This is between the first denial and the second denial. The second and the third one are about to come. But notice this word here that I've had underlined and highlighted in yellow. It's a special fire. It's a charcoal fire. This word charcoal is only used twice in the entire Bible, and here's the first one. It's a special kind of fire. John's letting you know that. This is a special fire. And there's a reason why he's letting you know that I want you to hang on to for now. So as he goes on and he does deny Jesus those three times, Peter, like the other disciples, start hiding in the upper room. There's only one disciple, John, who makes it to the cross. He's there as Jesus is being crucified. He's literally having the flesh torn off of him through the flogging, the, the crown of thorns placed on his head. He's watching this whole thing, but Peter and the other disciples are hiding, afraid in the upper room. Have I wasted my life? What does all this mean? Has God lost control? Is this not the Messiah? What in the world could all of this mean? And then they take Jesus' body and they lay it in a tomb. And Sunday morning comes. And when Sunday morning comes, all of a sudden, into the room pops a couple of Marys. And they say, he's gone. He's gone. The tomb is empty. The tomb is empty. They've taken the body. He's gone. And we're told in John that Peter and John run as fast as they can. And I love the way John tells the story because John says he beats Peter to the tomb. By the way, if that were me, I would totally put that in biblical history. I would totally make sure that got in there. 
And even though John beats Peter to the tomb, Peter's the first one in. John's a little hesitant, a little timid, maybe what's going to happen. Peter runs right into the tomb and sure enough, no, Jesus. What could this mean? What could all of this missing body mean? Over the next set of days, Jesus appears over and over and over again, but he does it. He just kind of shows up and he leaves and he teaches for a moment and then he goes. And they never know where Jesus is coming from or where he's going next. They don't really know what to do with him. Just all of a sudden he shows up and he says, you know, to, to some of the disciples at Thomas, look, go ahead and touch. It's real flesh. It's real bone. Go ahead. Try it. And other times he talks with them on a the road and he sits down and he eats with them and he teaches them. And all of these things continue to show them he is not dead. He has risen indeed. And Peter has to wonder, what could all of this mean? I mean, I blew it. He knew I blew it. We looked right at each other. He saw it. And what we learn later is that resurrection means some very powerful things. The rest of the New Testament, Peter's writing and Paul's writings and John's writings, they tell us that the resurrection means really three things. It means more than this, but it means at least these three things. Number one, there is a future judgment coming after this life is over. And that may not sound encouraging for some of you. Maybe like my friend in the hospital, that creates anxiety in you. Maybe not the fear of death itself, but the moments immediately preceding that. Now, here's the thing. I'm, I need you to hang on to this. See, I just finished watching Batman versus Superman on opening night, no less. And you're going to have to make your own decision whether you go see that movie or not. I am not endorsing the movie. But I will say this. There's this question that keeps coming up in the movie. They're wrestling with Superman being a godlike figure. And, and this comment is made in the movie that just like God, Lex Luthor says, he learned a long time ago that either God is all-powerful and not all-loving or he's all-loving and not all-powerful. He cannot be both or he is, there's just no way. Because when you look at the injustices in this world, when you look at people who have been hurt and wrong and sin has happened to them, when you look at those things, either he has no power and he can't do anything about it, but he wants to and he loves them, or he has the power and he just doesn't love them. He doesn't care. There's no other explanation. What resurrection tells us is that there is another explanation. That Jesus died on a cross. Why? To take all sin and all suffering upon himself. But he rose from the dead so that on the last day, when we are raised with Christ, there will be a judgment day. And evil will face judgment. It is coming. Now take a look. Here's the way Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10. For we must all stand before Christ to be judged. We will each receive whatever we deserve for the good or evil we have done in this earthly body. Now, when the Bible talks about good, there are such things as good actions. But really, what Paul's talking about in 2 Corinthians 5 is not good works. Really, what he's talking about is what have we done with Jesus? And that becomes clear if you read all of 2 Corinthians 5. Either we did good with Jesus or we didn't do good with Jesus. All of us are going to face that. And that's what the resurrection means. So listen, don't lose hope in God. Even after you watch Batman versus Superman, God has not lost any power or any love. But that's not all resurrection means. Resurrection also means this. 
And because Jesus was raised, we who love Christ will be raised in eternity as well. And that's fantastic news. Because that means whatever you're facing here is not the end of the story. There is more to be written yet. And that means that all the pain and all the evil that reigns on this world will one day be made whole. We talked about this when we wrapped up a Revelation series in January. If you're visiting, feel free to go online and check it out. But on the last day, he says, read this Revelation 20 and 21, that all the pain and the tears of the nations will be wiped away. There'll be a tree. I believe the tree points us to Jesus. And he will literally wipe away every tear. He will do this. That means this. I mean, those of us who love God, those of us who love God through Jesus Christ will live eternally. Paul says it this way in 1 Corinthians 15. So you see, this is verse 21. So you see, just as death came into the world through a man, now the resurrection from the dead has begun through another man. What he's talking about is when Adam sinned, we died. Because of that, we were all going to die. But now because Jesus came and Jesus died, we all don't have to die. So Adam killed us all. Jesus saved us all. Look at the next verse. Just as everyone dies because we all belong to Adam, everyone who belongs to Christ will be given new life. Death is not the end because of the resurrection. Verse 23. But there is an order to this resurrection. Christ was raised as the first of the harvest. Then all who belong to Christ will be raised when he comes back. So... Those of us who love God, this is at the end of the story. Your worst moment, your worst day is not the end of the story. There's more to be written, which takes us to number three. The third thing the resurrection means. The resurrection of Jesus Christ gives us purpose here on earth and gives us the power to live for Christ. This is what the resurrection means. Resurrection power means that you are dead to self and alive with Christ. Paul, who calls himself the president of sinners, he literally says, I'm the chief of sinners, I'm the CEO, I'm the worst sinner there ever was. Why? Because he persecuted and killed Jesus' followers. He hated Jesus and his followers. He literally killed them. And then he met Jesus and it changed everything. And in Philippians, that same Paul says, and I forget what is behind. I forget all that stuff from the past. And I keep my eyes fixed on Christ and I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. He looked at me and didn't say, done, dried up, worthless, useless. He looked at me and said, I'm going to redeem that one. In fact, Paul literally says it this way, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 16 and 17. He says, this means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone. A new life has begun. And all of this, all of this is a gift from God who brought us back to himself through Christ. God has given us this task of reconciling people to him. Hear this. For God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. No longer counting people's sins against them. That's what resurrection means. Now here's the thing. Um, Jesus died for everybody, but Jesus' death doesn't apply to everybody. And the way that works is, imagine it's like an Easter egg. And you put a little piece of candy inside for your kid and you give it to them. And your kid looks at you and says, oh, thank you so much for this generous gift. And they never open it, said no kid ever. But they never open it. 
And days turn into months, and months turn into weeks, and weeks turn into years. There's a prize inside. You still have to open it. You still have to eat it. You still have to take it. It was a free gift given to you by your Father who loves you. But it's nothing more than just a gift if it sits on the shelf. And that's what faith is like. That's what resurrection is like. It's there for the taking. The power is there for you. In fact, Peter, that same guy that we're talking about, he wrote, you have all you need for life and godliness through Jesus Christ our Lord. You literally have all you need. It's right there. Open the egg. Open the egg. But that came from Peter who believed those words later. Let's talk about why. We get to John chapter 21, and we find this Peter in a boat. He's been fishing all night. He's taken off his tunic, and he's hanging out with a bunch of the disciples. And all of a sudden, Jesus appears on the shore. They don't know it's him at first. And Jesus reveals that it's him. And then John again says, it's the Lord. And so Peter grabs his tunic, throws it on, just jumps into the water. Forget the boat. Forget the fish. And he gets to the shore, and he finds Jesus cooking a little fish meal for him. Here's that verse, John chapter 21, verse 9. When they got there... They found breakfast waiting for them, fish cooking over a charcoal fire, and some bread. Remember that word I told you to remember? Only used twice in the whole Bible. Here's the second one. What's Jesus doing? Jesus is recreating the scene of the crime. Jesus is taking Peter back to the most shameful moment of his life. He's taking him all the way back there for a reason. You know this. Charcoal just smells different. Some, like me, might argue it's from heaven. I mean, that might have been part of what Jesus is doing here. But if you've ever driven past a restaurant, uh, those who are in the medical field will tell you there's something about our olfactory senses. You can smell something and it just triggers something in your brain. I wonder what Jesus is up to. Jesus is not ever going to let you avoid the most painful, shameful moment of your life. He's going to take you right back there. But he will not leave you there. And what happens next is Jesus looks at Peter and he says, Peter, do you love me more than these? And he's pointing at some fish is my guess. Because Peter's been a fisherman. And when Peter failed, he gave up. There must not be enough grace for me. I'm going to go back to what I've always known. Jesus says, Peter, do you love me more than these? You know I love you, Lord. Then Peter, go feed my lambs. Peter, do you love me more than these? Why do you keep asking me this? You know I do. You've seen my life. Then go feed my sheep, Peter. And then we get to this. Verse 17 of John 21. And a third time he asked him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt that Jesus asked the question a third time. He said, Lord, you know everything. You know I love you. Jesus said, then feed my sheep. Hmm. How many times did Peter deny Jesus? How many times did Jesus ask Peter, do you love me? Jesus is looking at Peter and saying, Peter, the power of the resurrection is that you don't have to be defined by the worst day of your life. It doesn't have to go that way. You can have a different story in me. So what's the answer? Go feed sheep, Peter. Translation, I forgive you. It's time to forgive yourself. 
that night in the hospital, I preached the gospel to my new friend multiple times. He just couldn't accept the fact that God could forgive his worst day ever. And I'll be honest, guys. I looked at him and said, look, I'm not sitting here dismissing what you did. What you did is evil and wrong, and I would strongly discourage everybody from doing it. But what you did is not the end of the story. And he quoted me the, 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 the verses, some verses in Hebrews about sinning after there's a, a, a knowledge of Jesus. And he quoted me the, the unforgivable sin. And I looked at him and I said, look, I've read a lot of books, a lot of commentaries. And what is the unforgivable sin? And this is the only conclusion that I could come to from everything that I've read. If you're wanting to repent, then there is forgiveness. The only unforgivable sin is the sin that you will not repent of. That night I prayed with my friend. And he said, when I get out of here, will you baptize me? And I said, I would be honored. I want to show you the rest of what Jesus says to Peter. Look at John chapter 21, verse 18. He says, I tell you the truth, when you were young, you were able to do as you liked. You dressed yourself and went wherever you wanted to go. When you are old, you will stretch out your hands and others will dress you and take you where you don't want to go. Jesus said this to let him know by what kind of death he would glorify God. Then Jesus told him, follow me. This is huge. Because what Jesus just did, he took Peter all the way back to the scene of the crime. He redeemed and restored his sin to a glory through the resurrection. And then he said, feed my sheep. And then he said, Peter, I believe in you. You're not going to fail next time. Next time when it happens, in fact, somebody else is going to lead you to your death and you will go all the way to the end. In fact, history tells us Peter was crucified like Jesus, except he didn't consider himself worthy to be crucified like Jesus. So they did it upside down. Because Peter, the next time, followed through. He learned his lesson. I looked at my friend that night in the hospital, and I said, he said, what do I do? I have so much regret. I said, you cannot change everything prior to this moment. You can't either, by the way. Your job is to live every moment from here until whenever that day comes, be it months or years, for the glory of God. And every nurse and every doctor and every family member and every friend who comes in here, you tell them that Jesus has saved you. And you redeem every moment left. Three days later, I got an email on my phone from his sister again saying things have taken a turn for the worse. It was Monday morning. She said, they don't think he has months. They think he has weeks. Is there any chance you can get over soon? for us to talk about next steps. And a couple hours later, I got a follow-up email, and it said, it's not weeks, it's probably moments. I rushed to the hospital. I dropped everything. I went over. I spent about four or five hours there. He was so uh, heavily influenced by the pain medication that he was asleep, and he couldn't have a conversation. By the grace of God, they pushed some medicine in to help flush some of that stuff out, and he and I got about 10 minutes of lucid conversation. And in that moment, he said this, I believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. And I accept him as my Lord and Savior. And I performed my first sprinkling baptism ever. 
And two hours later, he died. And my friend has accomplished a lot in his death because you get to be touched by his story. And my challenge to you, friends, don't live your life with regret. The resurrection means your story isn't over. The resurrection means whatever it is you're coming in with today, whatever baggage you've got, whatever you're dealing with, take it to the cross. But just like Jesus said to Peter, follow me. This isn't a joke. This isn't a game. This isn't a once or twice a year kind of thing. This is an all-in, do you love me moment. The resurrection is a game changer, and it can be for you. I just don't want to see you on your deathbed going, what do I do now? Man, I want you to redeem every moment from here until that day so that one day you could tell your kids and your grandkids this great story of God's redemption in your life. What I'm going to do right now is I'm going to pray over us. We're not done. Service isn't over. We're still worshiping Jesus. It's resurrection day. Have I told you that? What we're going to do right now is we're going to celebrate that God is not done with us. There's going to be some men and women potentially who just get up and serve communion. So ignore them. They're not leaving. They're not angry. I don't think. They're going to go get communion. Now, if you don't know what communion is, communion is this moment where we just pause and we say, thank you, Jesus, for dying. But listen, Jesus didn't just die. Yeah, that's what the bread and the juice represents. Jesus rose. As you take that bread and that juice, you say, thank you, God. Thank you, God, that Jesus rose from the dead, and he's raising my family, and he's raising my kids, and he's raising my work, and he's raising my heart, and he's killing my sin. He's killing my selfishness. Thank you that you've never quit, that my worst day doesn't have to be my last day. And as you take that bread and juice, you just celebrate and give God the glory. And let me pray over you, and then we'll sing. Father God. Oh, God, we love you. We praise you. Lord, we thank you. Thank you that Jesus died, but that he didn't stay dead. He rose. Thank you, God, that there will come a day of reckoning, God, where the evil will face judgment, that you have not lost power and you have not lost love. Thank you, God, that you are seeing and knowing about everything going on in our lives and in our hearts. And thank you, God, that you have a plan, a plan for us to reconcile with you and to reconcile this world. Thank you, God, that you are redeeming our worst days. Thank you for my friend who gets to be a testimony here today, God, that in his death he did great things for you. Thank you for not wasting that, Father. And God, I thank you. And thank you for Jesus dying on a cross and raising from the dead. Give us life. It's in his name we pray.